Welcome to Boomers on Fire with educator, philanthropist, and mentor, Dr. Cynthia. Get ready to re-fire your life by listening to inspiring interviews with vibrant boomers who are rocking their retirement. Whatever the retiree is doing, we want you to hear about it so that it will spark something in you so that you can decide how you want to live in your second half of life. You will be exposed to new possibilities and new opportunities. It's time to re-fire, reinvent, and reimagine your second half of life with your host, Dr. Cynthia. very special guest who has dedicated her golden years to using her talents, skills, and energy to leave a legacy and give back. Claire Bloom is the founder and executive director of End 68 Hours of Hunger. She is a Purpose Prize Fellow from 2013. So welcome, Claire. Thank you, Cynthia. It's great to be here. So, Claire, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, I'm 67 years old, um, and so I'm definitely in what I consider to be my golden years. Um, I was a married mom and had children until I didn't enter the workforce until my divorce. I entered the workforce doing commercial real estate and then ultimately decided to join the military and make the Navy a career. I retired from the Navy in 1998. Um, started my own Internet-based business doing Internet education using email in 1998 until 2001. And in 2001, my oldest son uh, went to live in England, taking his children with him. And so we decided, my husband and I decided that we couldn't be without our grandchildren. So we packed up bag and baggage and moved to England and lived there for two years. When we came back, of course, I hadn't worked for two years, and I discovered that I really enjoyed that. So I decided that that was it. I wasn't going to work anymore. And sure enough, until 2010, I held to that and didn't do any kind of paid work. But in 2010, that's when I discovered that right in my own community, there were children in the school system who didn't have anything to eat between the time they got their free lunch in school on Friday and the time they got their free breakfast in school on Monday. And knowing that, I couldn't not do something about it. So that's when I started in 68 Hours of Hunger. Excellent. What an excellent name. How did you come up with 68 Hours, though? Well, 68 hours is the actual time between the time the children have lunch in school on Friday and the time they have breakfast on Monday. So these children are literally hungry for 68 hours every single week between Friday lunch and Monday breakfast. Wow. You know, I worked in a school system for over 30 years. I never thought about, I never thought about what happened between dinner time on Friday and breakfast on Monday. So I think this is such a novel idea. Well, thank you. What we discovered was that, um, and perhaps in your years or in the community you taught in, there was not a problem, but we've discovered that in almost every community there is a segment of the school population that suffers from what's called food insecurity, and that is these children have no idea when they leave school on Friday afternoon when they're going to eat again until Monday morning when they come back to school and get breakfast. And we've discovered that the percentage of children in the school system who are what we call, what we term food insecure, 
is roughly 10 to 15% of those children who are already receiving either free or reduced lunches through the school system, through the um, various state-supported and federally-supported programs. And so that 10 to 15% of children who are food insecure nationally equates to about 34 million children nationally who are food insecure and that when they're not in school, on weekends, during school vacations, and in the summertime, literally have not many food resources. Wow, that's an amazing statistic. And, and not many of us think about that. No, and unless you're actually working in the school system, you don't see the evidence of this. It's a nearly invisible problem. So um, some of the behaviors, for example, that the children exhibit in school that will allow an astute observer to see that there is a problem are, for example, they'll come into school on Monday morning, they'll rush to where they know they're going to get their breakfast, They'll quickly eat everything that is in front of them and then turn to their neighbors and ask their neighbors if they are going to eat all the food that they have, take whatever their neighbors are not eating and eat it immediately, and then they leave the cafeteria or wherever it is they're getting their lunch, and they go to the guidance counselors, to the school nurse, and to their teachers and ask for snacks. And this is a very typical behavior. They usually present to the nurse on Monday morning with headaches, stomach aches, very lethargic. Sometimes their hunger makes them behaviorally disruptive in the classroom, and so sometimes the teachers send them to the nurse, um, and the nurse, of course, unless they have food available, can't really do much to help these children, and so it becomes a, an issue if they can't learn because they're a, either A, not in the classroom because they're sick, or B, because they're so hungry they can't focus. So what we've discovered is that by identifying those behaviors at breakfast time and at lunch time, that we can identify those children who are food insecure. And um, there are other programs besides M68 Hours of Hunger that do the same kinds of things that we do. So if you can connect with a program like that in your community or start a program in your community, then you can wind up being able to very easily feed these children over the weekends, which makes them much more likely to succeed in school. Excellent. So um, so how, how do you feed them? Do you go to their homes to feed them? How does this work? Well, the children are identified by the school system, by either the guidance counselors, the nurses, or the teachers, identify the children, and they provide my organization with a very simple number. This is the number of children we have who need food this weekend. Our job, then, is to make sure that those children get the food, and we do that through two primary vehicles. Number one, we solicit funding from individuals and corporations, and we buy food. And number two is we solicit and accept donations of non-perishable food items. Then we have volunteers who pack those food items that we either buy or get as donations into bags, which we then deliver to the school, and then the school delivers them directly to those children in need. So we have no idea who those children are. It's completely anonymous. All we know is the number of bags that are requested by the school for that particular week. So you provide, what kind of bags do you provide, and, and what kind of, exactly what kind of food would you give for, like, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? 
Okay, well, we provide seven meals, and they are um, all non-perishable food items. They're packed in little bagged grocery bags. Um, and so some examples of the kinds of foods that we pro- pro- would provide, and we vary it week by week because we don't want the kids to just get the same thing every single week. When I designed the program, I thought of my grandchildren, and I thought, well, what would they enjoy eating? So, for example, for breakfast, um, twice a month they'll get a 10-and-a-half-ounce bag or box of cereal, and then twice a month they'll get three packages of Pop-Tarts, so they'll get six Pop-Tarts. And those are designed to be used for breakfast. For lunches, we send a combination of a can of soup, a can of beans, a box of crackers, a jar of peanut butter, a jar of jelly. Um, They get peanut butter one week and jelly another week. And then for the dinners that they require, we send a can of tuna fish or chicken. We send either a box of macaroni and cheese or three packages of ramen noodles. We send a can of fruit, we send granola bars, we send a can of canned pasta. So the food that we include in the bags adds up to a cost of roughly $10 per bag and provides roughly 7,000 calories to provide the children not only the seven meals that they need during the weekend, but also in particular the crackers, the peanut butter, the jelly. Those are intended to last a little bit through the week. Plus, we add some snack items, a couple of granola bars and some, um, if we get donated, things like fruit snacks or drink pouches, we throw those in as well. So they get some snacks, two breakfasts, two lunches, and three dinners. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And so they take these packs home over the weekend and give to their parents. Well, they they either give them to their parents or they just keep them to themselves or they share them with their siblings. Um, each child, of course, is in a different situation. Some of these children are actually homeless, so they'll take their bags to the homeless shelter and they may share them with all of the folks who are there in the shelter. Um, some of them are living with a single parent, in which case they'll share them with their family. Some of these children are living in situations that you would not want any child to live in, where the parents are largely absent from the home, in which case the children really need to fend for themselves. So all of these foods are basically foods, with the exception of the macaroni and cheese, that children can eat without any preparation and without any effort on their part. The macaroni and cheese, of course, the noodles do require to be boiled, and so our expectation is that either the children won't eat those or they'll have someone to help them to prepare the noodles. Wow. And how how old are these children, um, Claire? Well, we focus to start with when we enter a town. When we start a program in a town, we focus on the elementary school first because that's where the greatest bang for the buck comes. We know, for example, that if we can feed a child Um, and help them be more successful in the elementary levels, they're more likely to be more successful in the um, upper grade levels as well. So when we go into a town, we start with the elementary school, kindergarten. We actually are in a couple of Head Start programs as well to get the children even better start. But we start in the elementary schools, and then as funding and food becomes available, we move into the middle school. But we've discovered that by the time these kids are in about the eighth grade, peer pressure has struck, and they don't want to have anything to do with taking food home from school. So at that point in time, they pretty much drop out of the program. So, you know, with all the attention to teasing and bullying, how, how if a child has a bag of food, 
do the other kids tease them about it? And, and have you heard anything along those lines? Our experience is that in the elementary school, there's no teasing whatsoever, and that in the middle school, the younger students, the fifth graders and the sixth graders, get by just fine. Um, and actually, there's no bullying or teasing. It's more the other side of it. It's more that the child doesn't want to stand out, so the child themselves drop, the child himself or herself drops out of the program, not because they've been bullied or teased, but because they don't want that to be even a remote possibility. They don't want to be different from their peers. And that's a big problem. Yes. In the elementary school, you probably wouldn't have as much of that as in the middle school. Exactly. As a matter of fact, when the children get their bags on Fridays, they usually rush back to their classroom, open them up, throw them open, and show everybody what they've gotten. So they're very excited about it. Wow. So, Claire, what's the impact? Well, what we know is that if we can feed a child on the weekend, a child who would otherwise not have food to eat, the evidence that has been gathered by other programs is that a child can have an increased reading school reading score of 50% more than that child who's not been fed, an increased math score of 30% more than that child who has not been fed, and that that child is twice as likely to successfully complete the third grade. And interestingly, successful completion of the third grade is one of the primary indicators of high school graduation. So what we know is that if we can feed these children on the weekends, they will be more successful in school, be more likely to graduate from high school, and therefore be more likely to be productive community citizens. So it's in everyone's interest to feed these children. Absolutely, because we, we, we need children in the schools who are ready to learn. Exactly, and when they're hungry, they cannot focus on their schoolwork. All they can think about is where they're going to eat next. That's amazing. Um, Claire, I know you have several chapters. Now, who organizes them and how many children do you serve? And uh, is this run by volunteers or is it people who get paid to do it? We are a 100% volunteer organization. Nobody gets paid, not even me. In fact, all of our program coordinators wind up spending a good deal of their own money to be a volunteer in the program because there are things that don't get um, donated to us or we don't get donated funds for. We commit 100% of the funds that are donated to us to the purchase of food, which means when I'm setting up a new program in a new town, I have to purchase shelving units, storage bins to put the food in to protect it from any kind of rodent activity, um, um, business cards, thank you notes, letterhead, all of those kinds of things have to be purchased with other money. So the program coordinators spend their own money on postage to send thank you notes and all of these other things. Now, I do have a few grants that I've applied for and gotten for funding to start new programs. So now, fortunately, after three years of operation, I am no longer personally paying for the shelving units and the storage bins that start up a program. So to start a program in a town, we require four things. The first thing we require is that there be two people from the community who agree to be responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the program, and we call those people program coordinators. Those two program coordinators then work together with me to find a space, a donated space, that they can use that's 100% dedicated to them where they can store the food and they can pack the bags of food. And fortunately, thanks to both churches and schools and community self-storage units, 
we've been very fortunate and able to find space for all the programs that we've started. So once we have our two program coordinators and our dedicated space, we then go meet with the school system personnel and explain to them how the program works and get their buy-in. They identify the children who need to be fed and they give us the numbers. And then our job is to get the corporate funding and get the donated food to put together in the bags to get to the schools. And again, this is 100% volunteer. So typically, a program will have teams of folks, sometimes from civic organizations, sometimes from companies, who will come once a month to pack. So once we get the food in the unit, then these teams show up on Wednesday or Thursday. They um, gather together in an hour. They pack all the bags that need to be packed, take them off with them in their cars, and then the next morning they deliver them to the schools. And that's their volunteer piece of it. So to start a program, we need program coordinators, we need space, we need the school system buy-in, and then we need funding and food. Wow, what what a wonderful way to, to help kids and to give back to a community. Well, it wow. certainly has meant a great deal to children in our community. We started, we delivered, um, as I said, I found out about the problem in, in October of 2010. It took me roughly five to six months to get my 501c3 designation from the IRS. And so our actual first deliveries of bags went to one town, to three schools. There were 19 bags delivered in Dover, New Hampshire, to three elementary schools, and that was in October of 2011. We are now two years from that date, that start date, and we are now delivering 650 bags of food every single weekend in 15 communities in New Hampshire and Maine. And interestingly, I'm in the process of right now commissioning my first program outside of New England in, to believe it or not, the state of California in a town called Vacaville in California. So it's a program that has broad appeal nationally. And um, like I said, to start a program in your town, all we need is those two program coordinators and a dedicated space, and we're off and running. That's excellent. Oh, wow. So, um, so I am going to encourage all my listeners to either make a donation or to think about starting a program in your own town. We have a very easy process for starting a new program in their town, um, and I have an operations manual. I have policies all written up. I have step-by-step -step instructions. We're in the process now of developing a video series of things like, for example, what do you do when you go and speak to a civic organization and you're standing up in front? What kind of a speech do you give? Um, we're recording my next speech, which is actually this Friday. So we will have that to show how you answer the difficult questions. Um, we have all kinds of things being put together. We'll be putting some information soon up on YouTube. So, yes, absolutely. Um, we are at www.end68hoursofhunger.org. The number 68 is actually the two numbers, 6 and 8. So that's our web address is www.end68hoursofhunger.org. You can contact me directly through there. You can contact any of the programs that are currently operating through there. And you can um, make a donation. There's a donation button using PayPal, or you can send a check to the address that is on there. If you want to designate any donations to a particular town, just indicate what town that's for. If you want to designate the donations to any particular thing other than food, designate it that way. Otherwise, it all goes to buy food. 
Excellent. I love how you already have an operations manual. So it makes it really easy for um, people to just volunteer to do this. Exactly. All it takes, as I said, is two people willing to be responsible for the day-to-day -day operations, and um, I give you everything else and train you right through the whole process. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, Claire, this has been a wonderful interview, and I'm so happy that I found you. By the way, I see that you were a fellow in the 2013 program. I was very honored by that. I was nominated by one of the members of my board of directors and um, went through the process, and, you know, I was glad to be selected as a fellow. I would have rather been selected as a prize winner, but that's how it goes. So, uh, but I'm glad to have gotten that notice, and because the announcement was made on Veterans Day and I am a veteran, I'm retired Navy, they actually highlighted my profile on the front page when they made their announcement. So I was very pleased. Oh, that's excellent. What a wonderful way to live your golden years and to give back to the community. Well, thank you very much, Cynthia. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks again, Claire, and thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you in the next interview. That's all for this episode of Boomers on Fire. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of Boomers on Fire, I would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast to get automatic notifications when I publish a new episode. I would appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review to help spread the word and help more women reignite the second half of their lives. 